0: If you could stand for the reading of the Word of God. <clears throat> Today we will be reading Mark 8, 22 through 30 on page 492 in the Blue Book Bible that's on the back of each chair. If you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take one of these home with you. Hear the word of the Lord, Mark eight twenty-two through 30. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man.
1: Let's pray together over what we've heard. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that the scriptures themselves tell us about your word, that it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. God, that it divides the, the joints and the marrow, of the soul and the spirit. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of men and women. God, we thank you that your word is true that it stands forever, the grass withers and the flowers fade. Scriptures tell us but the word of our Lord stands forever. And so, Lord, let the word of God this morning read us and read our condition, diagnose us. Let it find out our own blindness, God, that we might be healed, that we might stay with you until we see everything clearly, Lord, until revelation comes about what is real and who you really are and and who we really are. So God, I ask for that. Lord, that will not happen without the intervention of your Spirit. And so God, we ask now that the Holy Spirit would come and, and open our eyes to see wonderful things in your Word. We ask that you would uh, cause our hearts not to be hardened against things that we hear. And God, we pray particularly for myself that, Lord, I would be a faithful witness to what your word has said, to what you have said through your word, and God, that, that people would be just edified and, and blessed and, and matured through what your word tells us. So I thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. It's very good to see you here this morning. I um, want to remind you just real quickly that we are uh, starting in a couple of weeks our, our uh, classes for those of you that have been here maybe for a while and are ready to uh, become members. We call members here Covenant Partners, and if that is something that you're interested in, we have Uh, We have it set up on our app our church center app for you to sign up and you may think well That's great, but I don't have the church center app. Daryl will wave your hand Um, If you need any help after service, Daryl will be in the foyer to show you how to get signed up We hope many of you will consider that Um, we take membership very seriously here Um, So let's get into the word Um, in this passage we have an amazing vision an amazing portrayal of Christ opening blinded eyes. And when I read the text, it reminded me in Luke four, how Christ stood in the synagogue at Nazareth, his hometown, and he reads from Isaiah's prophecy of The Messiah, how the Messiah would come and how what his ministry would look like. And he he read these words from the scroll of Isaiah. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And most amazingly of all, when Jesus reads that passage, he looks at all of those assembled in the synagogue, and he assures them that this promise has been fulfilled in his arrival right there in their midst. However, there's something really interesting about that passage in Isaiah. It's found in Isaiah 61. And the part of the promise that the Messiah will bring recovery of sight to the blind is not found in Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 61. Instead, Isaiah only references the releasing of prisoners from dungeons and bringing them out from darkness to light. If if that's the case, why would Jesus add this part about the recovery of the sight of the blind? Well, the reason is, is because both Isaiah and Jesus are saying essentially the same thing. You see, the prison of sin from which Jesus came to set you and I free is the darkest of all captivities. The darkness of that prison is so extensive that from its depths, we cannot see life for how it really is. We can't see life for how God designed it to be. Salvation Through the gospel of Jesus is the remedy for both our captivity and our blindness. It's why in one of our most cherished hymns in the church, John Newton wrote these words, I once was blind, but now I see. And though we've seen Many miracles performed by Jesus, since we started our line-by-line study through Mark, we've, we've seen him do all kinds of things. Our text today records the very first specific time that we see Jesus healing a blind man, restoring the sight of a blind person. And this healing is loaded with relevant imagery for all of us all of us who are followers of christ and so today the the truth the central truth that we're looking for is how does jesus open blinded eyes what does it mean to have blinded eyes and i I pray that as we hear this as we consider this as we look into it that our, our our cry will rise up from the depth of our being may god open our eyes The disciples had been with Jesus in the last few passages that we've looked at. He's been with, they've been with Jesus in Gentile regions around Israel. And while there, He cast out a a demon out of a little girl from a Gentile woman's daughter. He healed a a man who was mute and deaf. He had fed four thousand people with only seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. Yet, Following all of these miracles, and even in spite of him, he still had to confront this persistent disbelieving in it in the twelve, and the willful unbelief of the Jews. So, on the voyage to Bethsaida, where our our uh, our passage takes place today, where they have been traveling, when once they get there, you know, the, the, our story takes place. But while they're traveling there. Jesus had rebuked his disciples for their weak believing and he reminded them of all the things that they had seen and experienced and all of those things which should have fortified their faith. And he says to them in this rebuke, he says, do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? So he charges them with a degree of spiritual blindness. They had absolutely missed the meaning of his words, of his works. They had just blown right over them. So in God's providence, as they make port in Bethsaida, some people who had most likely seen or heard the reports of his healing power, they bring their blind friend and they beg him, they beg Jesus just to touch him. Now, obviously they're hoping for the result that was so frequently reported that this man would be healed, that he would be made well. Now, the first thing I want you to notice from this text is that Mark doesn't tell us, that the man came of his own accord. Unlike the story of blind Bartimaeus that you might be familiar with, he heard that Jesus was passing by as he was sitting begging. And, and, and when blind Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was passing by, he shouted out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Not this guy. Completely different kind of guy. A different, different kind of relation. The faith for the recovery of his sight was not primarily his own, but it belonged to his friends. Now, is that important? You bet it is. Why? Because all of us, everyone in this room who is a believer in Jesus has friends. We have family who are absolutely blind in sin. Amen? And they cannot see the grace that we have found in the Savior. No matter how much we talk to them about it, no matter how how much we want them to see it, they can't see it. They're blind. And we fear that they will never rise up on their own, never come to Christ and ask Him to open their eyes. And therefore, therefore, we have to be diligent to take them to Christ by our prayers, by our love, by our faithful witness. See, this man would be the recipient of an unsought miracle. He wasn't looking for this. But he would have remained in darkness without friends who loved him enough to bring him to Christ. Who, the Christ that This man had no eyes to see. He could look as hard as he wanted. He could never see Jesus. And the friends had to be willing to ask Jesus for what the man was unwilling to seek. And they had to believe, even in the absence of the man's own faith. And Christ, as we've seen over and over again, is moved with compassion and drawn to this man who needed his healing, men, his healing mercy, even if he didn't realize it. If he didn't recognize his own need. This healing, like your salvation, would be a gift of grace. It was nothing that the man could have earned. It was nothing he deserved. Nothing that he could have achieved, it had to be given to him by the Savior. So Jesus listened to the friend's cries and he touched him. But wait, he didn't initially touch his eyes. Instead, he took the man by the hand. And he led him out of the city and he led him away from the crowds that were probably beginning to gather. He led him away from his friends And he took him to a place where the man would be with absolutely no one except for Christ himself. None of us find salvation simply because we have an association with a godly family. None of us have found salvation simply because we have, you know, holy friends or a faithful church salvation and healing come when we stand alone before christ with no one to lean on and possessing nothing but our own sin that's when you're ripe for salvation so this would not only be an unsought miracle but it would be an individual miracle Jesus had determined to rescue this man completely apart from his Jewishness, completely apart from any righteous works that he may have done previously, and completely apart from his circle of believing friends. In Jesus' parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15, he's the shepherd who will leave the 99 sheep who who never left their home pastures and he'll go off looking for the one, the one that wandered off and retrieve them from danger. Jesus' heart is for strays. If you're here this morning and you think Jesus does not even see, Jesus does not care, Jesus doesn't have any need for you, no, you couldn't be more wrong. Jesus pursues strays. The ones who are out there wandering all by themselves, that's who Jesus goes after. The ones that are lost in the darkness, the blindness of sin, because they can't see their way to Him, He seeks them until He finds them. The Bible tells us in Luke 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Aren't you glad? So once they're alone together out in the field, Jesus repeats elements of the healing of the deaf and mute man in Mark 7 that Pastor David preached about a couple of weeks ago, um, who he also had led away from the crowds, and, and also with whom he also used his spittle as a means of healing. Now, when we look at that, We have to know, we have to recognize when we read this or any other method that Jesus uses for healing in the scriptures that the power to heal the blind man was not in Jesus' spitting. And the power to heal the blind man was not even in Jesus' touching. The power to heal the blind man was in Jesus himself. Jesus is healing incarnate. What he touches, however he touches, what he speaks over, it's made well. And though the thought of Jesus spitting in this man's eyes may feel repulsive to our 21st century sensitivities, Jesus does everything for his own glorious purposes. And guess what? This is good news, actually. He doesn't owe any of us an explanation about how he does what he does. Amen? So if we're cleansed, from our sin by his blood, is it impossible for us to believe that he can use the saliva if he chooses to, to heal the blind, the deaf, the mute? See, our task is not to understand with precision why Jesus chose his methods, but to recognize along with the people in Mark 7 who said, he does all things well. However he does it, if I were to ask ten of you how you came to Christ, those ten stories, chosen at random, would be wildly different. And yet, the effect was the same. You know the Savior. You have come to know Christ and become one of His. So does it matter how he did it? No. The fact is that he loved you enough to call you his own. Amen? Amen. So then Jesus does something that we don't find in any other record of healing in the four Gospels. He asks the man, how are you responding to my healing touch? He asks him specifically, hey, do you see anything? And the man reports, yeah, I see something. I see the people, they're like trees walking around. In other words, he could see that they were not trees, they were people by their movement, but... But they, they they weren't clear. They, they There was no distinction. They didn't look exactly right. And so this unsought individual miracle was at this point an incomplete miracle. And let me tell you something. All of our lives through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit are incomplete miracles. For years, this passage has made me uncomfortable. Can I admit that? Can the preacher admit that? I remember when I first stumbled upon this passage three decades ago it's like what is this all about in every other instance in the new testament when jesus heals the results are instant and they're complete he makes the lame walk he opens the ears of the deaf he does all these things and there's no stages in his healings he just says it or touches or whatever he chooses to do and it's done Why does this miracle seem comparatively deficient? Well, we can rule out a couple of things. First, we can rule out a limitation or depletion of Jesus' power. The Bible credits Jesus with creating the worlds and raising the dead. Surely, he can open a blind man's eyes. Additionally, He healed many people in single settings before, right here in the book of Mark. We've seen it where the whole city, it says, I think in Mark 1, came to him and he healed them. Some have attributed this weakness then, not to a weakness in Jesus, but to a weakness in the man's faith, that somehow, because he didn't have enough faith, it it limited Jesus' power. Well, let me say that that is absolutely preposterous. Jesus often did miracles, like a few chapters ago when he fed the 5,000, or in John where he raises Lazarus, where he does what he does without the recipient's faith being alive. It's hard for a dead man to have faith to be raised, wouldn't you agree? So how how can we put this into, into context? Well, it's simply this. Just like with the spitting, the Bible tells us in Psalm 115, verse 3, that our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. So what is happening here? What's happening here is a lesson for us all. When the disciples had no faith uh, for for him to feed the 4,000, and in the boat when they misunderstood his statement that to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, he said to them, Having eyes do you not see? This was an object lesson about true vision that was happening here. See, the disciples were not spiritually blind. They weren't walking in darkness like the Pharisees were. But they also did not yet see the true meaning of Jesus with perfect clarity. They often, the, Mark told us at least twice, that they often forget his works. And they harden their hearts. And they failed to grasp the underlying meaning of Jesus' miracles and His teachings. Though they were faithful to Him, and though it would be clear that they loved Him, they just weren't quite getting it. And in this healing, that Jesus paused before it's completely done, what are they getting to see? They're getting to see that Jesus is patient with their stumbling. Ah! As someone who stumbles a lot, I like that. I like that when Jesus touches me and I have to say, I still don't see it clearly that Jesus is willing to touch me again. Man, isn't that good? He helps them. To progress. He was committing, he was committed rather to see his work bear fruit in them. He says, or Paul says in Philippians 1, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Man, if you can't cling to any other promise, that's a promise to cling to, amen? You are not done. The bell on the oven has not gone off yet. you got some bacon to do. And Jesus is not going to pull you out until you are ready. He's going to make sure you get to where you're going. And may God be praised for it. But they also saw that Jesus' mediation was critical for them to ever see Clearly. They would never see better by using their own brains, their own strength, their own morality. They needed divine help if they were ever to see clearly and precisely. After the man reports his distorted vision to Christ, Jesus touches his eyes again and he sees perfectly. And this shows the moment when the unsought, individual, incomplete miracle becomes an accomplished miracle. What Jesus begins, he completes. This man was brought to him with completely blinded eyes, and he left Jesus with restored twenty twenty vision. And, incidentally, a command not to reenter the city. Why is that? Well, Matthew 11 tells us that Jesus would one day curse Bethsaida for its unbelief. Jesus did not want to give them another miracle to impenitently ignore. Now, we still have half a story to go through, so buckle your seatbelts. This healing is situated after the record of the disbelief of the disciples in the boat, and it served as a corrective to that disbelief. So what follows this miracle is incredible. Because it demonstrates clearly that Christ was committing, committed to opening the eyes of the disciples. And he did. What he'd done physically with the man, he would do spiritually for his disciples. All of them had traveled due north to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And there, Jesus begins a purposeful interrogation of the twelve. First there is a question posed. Who do people say that I am? Now, because of Jesus' notoriety, rumors had been circling about his true identity. And so Jesus is asking his disciples, hey, what, what have you been hearing in the crowds? What are they saying about me? How are they putting the things that they're seeing and hearing into context? And the disciples report to to him that some, like King Herod and his court, think that he is a resurrected John the Baptist. And others think that he is Elijah, who the Jews believed would return before the Messiah, fulfilling Malachi's prophecy. And still others felt like he was a resurrected prophet, like Jeremiah or Daniel. And the people, what I want you to see about this, is the people, though Clearly wrong, they were not insulting Christ by assuming these things. All of these men that they mentioned, John the Baptist Elijah, one of the prophets, were, were people who were held in high regard by the Jewish populace. It would be the delight of their hearts for another John the Baptist another another Elijah to show up on the scene. Being a prophet in Israel was a big deal, and they thought when they when they when they uh, uh, applied those identities to him they thought well we're we're honoring him by doing this but see they missed all of them missed the reality see jesus wasn't a forerunner to the messiah like elijah or john jesus was the messiah he was the long awaited christ the son of god the son of man And they, the the, the populace, the people, the crowds, the mob could not see that. Why? Because they were blind. They were spiritually in darkness. Even their concept of what Messiah would be was guided more by political and military aspirations instead of spiritual truth. And I want you to know, before we kind of roll our eyes at those people, how could they have missed it so much? Let me tell you this. Every time, every culture has a view of Jesus that they embrace instead of the truth. Ouch. Every one of us does that. Every every culture, every generation. Right now we have a lot of people that like to talk about the peace-loving, hippie, social justice Jesus. He loves and accepts everyone, but he's never going to judge anyone. And there's another side of the spectrum, the Republican moral majority flag-waving Jesus, who came not to call sinners to repentance, but to win the culture war. Our eyes are yet blind to the truth of who he is. See, Jesus does not come to join in our agenda, Jesus comes to reign and crush all other agendas. That's who he is. He shifts. Jesus shifts this line of questioning from the pulse of the culture to the the convictions of his very own followers. And he says, hey, okay, so John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, but who do you say that I am? And let me just pause here to say that there is no question that is more important than that. There is no question that is more universal than that. We will all have to answer that question. And those of you who are resisting answering that question have already answered it. The way we answer that question determines whether we are true believers, true disciples, true followers or not. And at this question, something happens. Unseen lightning strikes. Peter's eyes begin to light up as he just boldly responds, You are the Christ. Matthew actually gives Peter's fuller answer. He says in Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ is just the Greek form of the word Messiah. He's saying you are the promised one. And more than that, you are divine. You are God. Peter doesn't mistake him for some dead prophet or past hero. He is the long-awaited Christ. He is the Messiah. And we have to turn again to Matthew's Gospel to see Jesus' immediate response to this faith-filled declaration by Peter because Mark leaves this out. But Matthew tells us in verse 17, he says, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. That just means Simon, son of John. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven, what is he saying there? Saint saying, Peter, here's the blessing. Your eyes are open. You see now with greater clarity. You see what you did not see before. He's, he's posed these questions to demonstrate that God has opened Peter's eyes as well as the rest of the disciples, except Judas, of course. The questions were designed to show that a revelation had been given. Jesus is saying, Peter didn't come to this knowledge on his own. It was given to him from above. Jesus says, Peter is blessed By the virtue of the fact that the Father has chosen to reveal these truths to Him. It is no small thing to have our eyes opened and our minds enlightened by God's grace. What we understand, if we understand anything at all, the content of what we understand is a gift. It's a gift. It means that God pulled us aside, away from the noise in the crowd, and he's opened our eyes. But do we regard it as such? How often, if we were really honest... How often do we thank the Lord for what He shows us in the pages of the Bible, for what He shows us in the hearing of a sermon? How aware are we that we are utterly dependent on God for the smallest shred of insight that we have into heavenly things? How often do we ask boldly that more insight be given? So to close... I'd like to make four points of application from the two halves of this text. And I pray that you will not just be thinking about what's for lunch, but that you would hear these applications and say, what does this mean? What does this mean and where I'm at with Christ right now? Hear them attentively. Hear them prayerfully. So first is the absolute truth that only Christ can open our eyes. There's no measure of worldly wisdom that'll do it. Present religious observance or past religious traditions won't do it. Success and popularity and the acceptance of the culture will not do it. Only Christ can open your eyes to see things the way they really are. To see him as he really is. To see yourself as you really are. And everything else... That you see without him Is just a delusion Second In this life And this is the beauty of this illustration Jesus gave us with this man In this life None of us will ever have Perfect vision Even after the initial touch of Christ To restore our sight In our salvation See there's this problem we all have It's called indwelling sin There's external temptation that makes us oftentimes just see men as trees walking. Paul described it as seeing through a glass, but darkly. Though we've been justified by the blood of Jesus, and we're being sanctified by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, our flesh is a constant nuisance. Amen? Let me try over here. Amen? It's a constant nuisance. It dirties the glass and makes it hard to see the image of Christ within us. Have you ever read passages about being conformed to the image of Christ and looked in the mirror and say, no. I don't know who I'm looking at, but he don't look anything like Jesus. But see, here's the beauty of this passage, this illustration Christ gives us. Jesus is patient in his work by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, by the instruction of the Bible, Jesus will frequently ask you, do you see anything? you see anything? He will not stop touching you with His healing power until you see clearly. Praise the Lord. Thirdly, Through Christ's ongoing intercession, you will progressively see more clearly. Proverbs 4.18, I love this verse. It says, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Right now, some of you are in the place of life where morning has just broken. And there's still a lot of shadow and a lot of darkness around you, but there's a light that's beginning to dominate. And what Christ is telling you in this passage is that the sun, the sun of righteousness, as Matthew, as Malachi calls him, will continue to rise until it's noonday. And you see everything clearly. Isn't that exciting? But here's, the, here's the, the hard part. This is not automatic. Alexander McLaren, the 19th century Bible expositor, said this. He said, the measure, listen carefully to this, the measure of your desire is the measure of your capacity. And the measure of your capacity is the measure of God's gift. So in other words, the more you desire, the more God will expand your ability to receive, and the more uh, you you expand your ability to receive is the measure of God's gift. God will just keep filling as long as you want to be full. Psalm 81 says, Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. It's the same picture here. How much do you long for recovered vision? You can't expect to ever see clearly if it's your habit and your practice to look away from Christ and not to Him, to stop your ears to His Word and not listen. Jeremiah uh, said to, to the people who he was sent to preach to, he said, "You," he said, through, uh, speaking for God, he said, "You've turned your backs to me and not your faces." That kind of person can never expect to have their eyes opened. Mary said, upon the news of hearing that Jesus, that she'd be the mother of Jesus, she said, He has filled the hungry with good things. The promise is sure. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the condition is hunger. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Lastly, fourthly, we have the promise that one day we will see clearly because of the touch of Jesus. Let me give you that scripture I referenced earlier. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, but then, but then, face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully Even as I have been fully known, there's a day coming when these old raggedy eyes are going to be wide open. And I'm going to see clearly what I've only seen shadows and images of in this life. The Puritan spoke of the beatific vision and the blessed sight when we see Christ glorified with the glory he had with the Father before the world was made. And in that moment, all of our losses and heartaches here will seem like the memories of a blind man. Back when we saw men as trees walking. Because there we will see everything clearly. What we suffer from here and now is just spiritual nearsightedness. We're no longer blind. If you have believed in Christ, you're no longer blind. But we live in too close proximity to this fallen world. So what are people like you and I in this condition to do? Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. Though your vision is unclear, strain your eyes to see what's coming. Hope in it. Rest in it. Ask Jesus to see it better and better and better. Would you stand with me? Lord Jesus, we want to see better. We want to see more clearly, God. We want to know the height, the depth, the width, the length of the love of Christ. God, we're a lot like the disciples, we often forget. Our hearts harden. Our eyes are blind. Our ears are deaf. But Lord, you just keep touching us and you say, Do you see anything? Do you see anything? Do you see anything? Lord, I thank you for the progressive improvement in our vision that comes through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, that comes through the examination of your word. So, Lord, thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would shine your light on every heart here today and that we would recognize by your voice the places where we're most nearsighted. All we can see is what's really close to us. God, I pray that you would just touch our eyes again. How many people hear your voice this morning? Do you see anything? Do you see anything? Do you see anything? God, help us to be honest. I don't see it. What I see is distorted. What I see is unclear. Lord, let us run to you. Feel the grace of you placing your hand on our spiritual eyes so that we might see. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to ask our communion workers to come and prepare while we sing this song of praise and response to this message. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to encourage you and invite you to come joyfully and receive uh, the elements of the Lord's Supper and then take them back to your seat and we'll take them together. Um, we always like to uh, remind you this is a ordinance, a sacrament for just believers in the Lord Jesus. If you are not confident of your relationship with Christ, then just refrain from partaking this morning and please give us the joy of talking to you and letting you uh, understand what this what this life is all about. And then uh, but for the rest of you, those of you that that are, are believers in Christ, we want to invite you to come and receive the elements and then uh, take them back to your seat and we'll take them together in a moment. chapter of 1st Corinthians the Apostle Paul writes he says for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me let's take the bread together In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now you just personally give thanks for what the Lord has done. Lord, I thank you for your you the death of Jesus. Jesus, I thank you for your willingness to be sacrificed for my sin. I thank you for the blood that cleanses me of my impurity, your brokenness that makes me whole. And Lord, I thank you that the way that your, your body and your blood unite me to you and unite me to this family of believers. And God, I just pray that you would just continue to work in me and work in my brothers and sisters as the covenant is renewed in this moment. And We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, just place your hands in a receiving position. I just want to speak this benediction over you, this great promise. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.